Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Check out Apocalypse Podcast Network for more great podcasts. The following podcast is brought to you by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Robots vs. Dinosaurs is brought to you by the 28th Street and Crescent Bodega. <laughs> Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener. Jurassic Park, Star Wars The Force Awakens, Star Wars The Last Jedi, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker, Ghost, AI, Artificial Intelligence, Mother, Wally, Portal, Portal 2, and The Land Before Time. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week, I am talking to podcaster and comedian, host of the Honey Leave It show on the Apocalypse Podcast Network, which Robots vs. Dinosaurs is also a very proud member of, Honey Leave It. Honey, why don't you tell the audience what movie we're going to be talking about today? Hi, Louis. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are talking about the 2014 movie Ex Machina, starring Oscar Isaac and some ginger. (laughs) That's correct. It also stars Tomb Raider, Alicia Vikander, if I'm pronouncing her name right. Yes, Alicia Vikander, yes. Who knows if I'm pronouncing it right? Who knows? Alicia, I know you're listening. Yes, she's a big fan of the show. Uh, she'll write in to let us know if we mispronounce that or anything. She's good like that. And uh, this movie is directed by Alex Garland. And our, just as like a, a broad question, are you familiar with any more of our, this director's work or, or do any of the stars in this movie stand out to you? I am familiar with, with Alex Garden, who I think is also the writer of this film. He's a writer and director. He wrote the screenplay for Annihilation, which is a movie I've seen twice. I love that book and film. He wrote the screenplay for 28 Days Later, which is another, which is one of my favorite zombie movies. I really like it. Yeah, I also am a huge fan of Oscar Isaac. I've seen so much of his work. Um, I think the first thing I ever saw him in was uh, Inside Lewin Davis. And then once I saw that, I watched as much of his work as I could find. I just think he's amazing. And, um, and then there's that guy from Harry Potter, who cares? Uh, Alicia Vikander. <laughs> I, I also love her. I'm, a, I'm actually a fan of uh, Mads Mikkelsen, who mm. is from, gosh, I want to oh. say Denmark. Anyway, he did a bunch also of- Also in Star Wars. Okay. And um, <laughs> he did a bunch of, I've seen like a lot, all like the European TV and film that I could find with him in it I've watched. And she's been in a few of those things. I think she played like a Danish princess or something. Anyway, she's wonderful. Yeah. I also saw her Tomb Raider film and I thought it was pretty good. I thought so too. I I really liked it. And I was kind of, uh, have you played the Tomb Raider game that, that came out recently? I do not play video games. I'm a cool person who likes to have sex. Okay. There's some, you know, there's some overlap. You draw a circle of people that play video games, another circle of people that have sex or like to have sex. I'm sure there's some overlap. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Okay. So I, so this is my first time co-hosting your podcast. And will you tell me a little bit about like how, like what the the premise is, this robots versus dinosaurs. I mean, I think I get it because, you know, but just to just get just to get me up to speed to make sure I'm doing this right. 
Absolutely. There is no right or wrong. The, the, the format of the podcast is, I, I would say it is largely a sci-fi comedy, but, but also sci-fi philosophy podcast. So the premise is we, wa- we watch a movie every week. I ask a guest to pick the movie every week. So that way they're picking a movie that they like for some reason, or very often it's a movie they love and, and feel very passionately about. Uh, so then once they tell me which movie we're going to be reviewing, I will watch it. I'll take notes. And then the interview is just all about the podcast is just all about me asking my questions that I had while I was watching it mm-hmm. that I'm hoping will open up a bigger discussion on sci-fi, but especially with this movie being a robot movie, especially a discussion on robots, robotics, AI, um, and any thoughts that you have on that. So it's it's definitely not, uh, I, try, I try not to sound like I'm quizzing my guest or anything, because I'm more interested in just your opinions, your thoughts, awesome. and, and your reactions to the film, and, and what the film is trying to teach us about its view of the world, and, and things like that. Great, that sounds great, because I, I am a highly opinionated person, and I have a lot of opinions about this movie. Perfect. That's exactly what we're going for. <laughs> it is a movie that I liked a lot the first time I saw it. And it, you know, it occurred to me when you asked me to co-host, this was like the first robot movie that popped into my head. Cause it's also a very sexual movie, which goes along with, you know, my whole thing, which is talking about sex. <laughs> so my favorite thing. Honey, you, uh, yeah. why don't you tell the listeners also about your podcast? If, if sure. you, um, Yeah. Okay, so The Honey Leave It Show is a comedy podcast um, that's mostly about sex and relationships. And so if you like sex and you like laughing, um, this is the show for you. But I, I'm warning you, if you don't like sex and you hate to laugh, you should really not listen to it because you're going to be so disappointed. So that's yeah, my caveat. Prudes and boring people should definitely avoid Honey Listen, show. or asexuals. Some people just have no interest. Um, that's true. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I, I want to walk that back. I, that probably yeah. did come out as judgy and I do yeah. want to acknowledge uh, okay. the ACE community. Honestly, <laughs> no, I think, listen, I'm so judgy. <laughs> I've made several more cruel jokes about video games. If given the opportunity, yeah. feel free. It's <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, you know, I interview, uh, I interview a lot of comedians. I also interview writers and sex workers and artists and performance artists and, you know, as many interesting different kinds of people as I can find to talk to about their sex lives and their um, lives in general, because, you know, sex is such a fundamental part of life that you end up talking about a lot of different things. And um, it's been really, really, it's just been my favorite thing I've ever done in the whole world. I just love it. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Can I ask, do you often find your guests maybe at first are are hesitant or, or feel like they're not going to be comfortable talking about sex? Because in general, I feel like society, American society especially, is, is a little bit uncomfortable when the topic of sex comes up. So do you find that your, your guests are sometimes a little bit hesitant at first, but then open up later? Or is it sort of like once they're in front of the microphone, it just all comes out, it all spills out? Uh, I would say I would say both both and either can happen. I, my, I'm never trying to embarrass someone or get somebody to overshare in a way that they'll regret later. So I even use a safe word on the show because I'm all about enthusiastic consent in the details that people give me. I do often press people for more detail because I find when people get to the nitty gritty, they tend to clam up a little bit and get a little squidgy with details. <laughs> So sometimes I push it, but, um, you know, I also try to share openly about my own experiences, which I think helps people open up. And yeah. And the point is to share openly because like, you know, sex is shameful because we keep it a secret. 
you know, and, mm-hmm. if, and if we weren't shy, if we weren't shy about sharing about it, talking about it, then I think we would be less ashamed of sex in general. And that would be a wonderful thing for everyone. So, yeah, but also mostly I just, I just really want to get me and my guests to a place where we're making a lot of hilarious dick jokes. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. I, uh, uh, listeners, you should definitely check out the Honey Leave It show. There's going to be a link to that in the show notes and you're going to hear a, a bit of a commercial for it during the mid roll. We've got an ad for the Honey Leave It show during the mid roll you'll hear. So that'll give you a little preview of some of the conversations that you will be lucky enough to hear if you listen to the podcast. Um, I listened to a couple episodes recently. Today, I listened to one, I think it was just released with uh, Dick Nerd. And you uh, gave the audience some some instructions about fisting and some of the differences between, or some of the misconceptions about fisting. And that was very um, educational. It was, it was, it was intended to be educational. As a person who enjoys uh, vaginal fisting, I have to say I have met, I have had a lot of um, partners not really know what to do. And I'm, I'm, which uh, is like, it's a whole other thing, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, it's, uh, it was a really fun conversation. And I really like the, I really like the the person I was talking to the, the, the host of the Dick Nerd podcast. And we had a really fun time. So thank you for listening to that. That's awesome. Absolutely. I think you're a great host. I really do think listeners, you should check out that podcast. It's, uh, yeah. And and I'm excited to have you on as a guest today and you, or I guess I should say co-host because that's, that is the word that I use. Yes, Uh, co-host when I introduce people. So you're my co-host today. Yes. And we are going to be unpacking Ex Machina, the 2014 uh, Alex Garner, uh, Alex Garner, Alex Garland film with uh, some some ginger from some Star Wars movie and oh, also God. Oscar Isaac from some Star Wars movie. I feel bad for, for all my, for all the gingers in the world. I, I have, I'm not anti-ginger. I just, uh, I have a, a particular distaste for this actor. I think he is, uh, he's an actor, Dom Hall Gleason. I have distaste for the spelling of his name and the position of the H and the N, but yeah. Scottish name. (laughs) It's not the name. It's just the impossibility of pronouncing and spelling it. That's what I take issue with. But otherwise, um, may I ask, why do you, uh, what what are your strong feelings about Dom Nall Gleason? I mean, I think he's a, here's the thing. The thing is about casting this actor is to me, it was a huge giveaway. And by the way, here, here come the spoilers. So if anybody hasn't seen Ex Machina, um, I'm going to get out of it. It came out in 2014. It's your loss. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So like, as soon as you cast him as this, as this programmer who falls in love with the robot, um, you know, that he's going to be, uh, that he's like the passy, he's the fall guy, right. That he's going to be, that he's not going to, this, this is not a guy who's going to have an happy ending. Uh, and I think in the casting and also in the portrayal, uh, they really show, they really tip their hand. And so that's really like the problem that I have with it. Um, I think he's a great actor. I think he's, he's good, but they, but you know, they just, the sort of his sort of um, the more they reveal about him, the more it see, he seems to be someone who doesn't have much going for him. And Mm -hmm. when somebody like that is like kind of a cipher that like a character like Oscar Isaac's character, the character of Nathan, where they can sort of like pour their influence into like you just know it's not going to end well for this guy. I would agree that he does come off as a bit of a blank slate at the beginning. I do think we find out later on he has a very specific trauma that that makes him a unique character and a unique person to be in this Turing test, but then you find out later another reveal <laughs> that that was that trauma was the reason he was chosen. 
see, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just cynical, but as soon as he revealed that about himself, I was like, oh, so this uh, immediately my mind went to, oh, he's okay. So he's got like this sort of leaking broken heart, which is probably why this wealthy billionaire like picked him, not because he's a good programmer. Right. right. And then that turned out to be the reason. And I was like, boo, lame. Fair, <laughs> fair, mean, fair. I'm also really, I watch tons of mysteries and I'm always trying to figure out the angle. So like when mm. any like small hint of exposition is dropped, I, I grab it immediately and come up with like three or four different things that like, it, that could happen later. Like I just, I'm always spoiling things for myself. So <laughs> Honey, you're a you're a writer, right? You're a comedy writer. Uh, a little bit of a writer. I'm mostly just a just a big mouth. <laughs> I do. Um, I do think that is a common curse with writers: is that you, when you're writing a story, you're exploring in your mind all the possibilities, all the possible threads that it could go into, and therefore all of the possible endings. So when you're watching something and you recognize that groundwork being laid, it does kind of put your brain into overdrive and you start jumping to the conclusion. And it's, it, it is sort of like a little bit of a curse of uh, knowing how the sausage is made might be one way of looking at it, you know? Yeah. But I, I do think this is, a, this is a very good movie. It's not a perfect movie. There's definitely some issues with it, but as a, as a entry point for talking about um, sci-fi, for talking about robots, especially, I think it does some very interesting things. It talks about some very interesting aspects of robotics. So, honey, before we go into the movie itself, uh, I would like to ask you something I ask all of my guests. What is, and this is, this is actually, I, I want to ask this before we start talking about the movie, and I think throughout our discussion, your answer might, might change. My answer definitely changes every single time I ask this question and have a discussion about it. So, uh, I'm hoping that it's a sort of a developing, evolving answer. Okay. But very simple question, honey, what is a robot? <laughs> okay, um, a robot is a machine um, powered by a computer that um, can do a varying degree of complicated or uncomplicated tasks depending on the sophistication of the computer powering it. Okay. Does, do you distinguish categories of robots? Like, for example, to you, is there a difference between an android and a uh, cyborg and a robot? Well, androids, I think, I feel like in, in science fiction, androids, it seems like, are like the robot that's supposed to be passing, right? Like, whereas a cyborg is more, is always out, is, isn't a cyborg, like, can a cyborg have started out as a person? Usually, yes. Cyborg is like, you know, like, so cyborg is like CPU is, is still a human brain. Mm -hmm. uh, so really, they're just a modified person. And then Android, cyborg, and what was the other one you said? Robot. Um, oh, robot. So which is robot. a broad term, but yeah. I mean, like, there's robots in the world now, like the Roomba and like, you know, that Japanese pet dog whatever that's mm. called, that are not, um, that are not like as sophisticated as we, I would say, as a society want robots to be eventually, but there's already like working robots in the world. They're just like on a simpler level. 
True. Uh, yeah, a lot of factory machines are are robotic. Uh, I've had previous guests say that the the kiosks, when you go to a Walgreens or like a McDonald's even, or a lot of places nowadays, when you have one of those self-service kiosks, technically that is a touchscreen robot. Would you consider Siri? Mechanism that you can see on the outside for it to be a robot. Right. Which is uh, my other question. Would, would you consider Siri to be a robot? You know, I don't talk to that bitch and I don't want to know. <laughs> okay. I don't know what about Alexa? Because, uh, no, oh God, there's no Alexa in my house. Uh, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, I'm, 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 a, listen, I could go on and on about how much I hate Amazon, but um, <sighs> who has the time? Yeah, I don't, I don't have a, it's not that I'm, a, I'm not technology averse. I am monopoly averse. Mm. So I'm a I'm a hu- I'm hugely suspicious of the market share that Amazon as a company has in so many areas. You know, I don't like their anti-competitive practices, so I try not to spend money on Amazon branded things. Okay, would you say that for something to qualify for an artificial intelligence to qualify as a robot per se, it has to have some sort of physical form with moving parts? I, that's that's a good question because you know that you know that famous robot from space odyssey 2001 it was actually was it a robot because it was really like the system that controlled things that moved but they weren't like part of its it didn't have like a body and it was i would say a robot we're talking about how yeah how from how 9000 yeah hmm um, let me throw something at you that's similar to how, because that's a good point. Have you seen Flight of the Navigator? I have seen that. Yes. I mean, so I Max. when I was a child. So, you, you know. Okay. I, it's fresh in my mind just because it was on a recent episode of Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. But one thing that we discussed in that is Max is this like floating eyeball with the voice of Paul, uh, Paul Rubens, uh, Pee Wee Herman. And it also seems to be the ship itself. But we discussed whether the robot, whether Max as a robot is just that articulated arm with an eyeball. Is he the, is his body the entire ship? Or is he an AI inside of the ship that is piloting the ship? Question. Because another, another wrench to throw into the whole thing is mechs, like a Gundam or uh, the exosuit from Aliens. That or Voltron. Voltron, exactly. Voltron's a much better example because the Voltron robots can sort of show up to the battlefield on their own. And Mm -hmm. then the pilots go inside of them and then they have this sort of symbiosis of the human operator inside of the machine. But But up until the human is inside of them, they're still capable of moving on their own and carrying out some simple protocols and tasks. Yeah. So. And then once they assemble into Voltron, then then the this assembled Voltron speaks in a Voltron voice too. So it's like Voltron yeah. doesn't exist until he's assembled, but then once he's assembled, he has like an identity. Although he is empowered by the five people inside. And then I guess one of them is really the Voltron pilot, right? The yeah. black Voltron. Yeah. Why do I know so much about Voltron? Oh, that's <laughs> life. Well, listen, you're, you're, you're in the right place for, to bring your Voltron knowledge. So. Yeah. so honestly, yeah, that's a really, you know, honestly, I hadn't thought about that very much, but I do think that like, if we're talking about like robot versus Android, you know, what's more interesting about an Android is not how much they look like a human, but how much they think like a human. So like, mm. you know, the robotic element, the moving parts are less 
are less interesting than the thinking parts. And I guess you don't really need a physical form like beyond, you know, a microchip to have the thinking parts. I agree. I agree. And I I think what we can say at this point is that it's inconclusive exactly what a robot is. But I do, uh, one part of your definition that I strongly agree with that I think we're going to revisit a lot is a robot has a purpose that was built into it. Mm -hmm. It rarely has its own purpose or finds its own purpose, unless it's like the main character of the story. And then it's usually about it becoming friends with a human and trying to become more human. But... Uh, that that does not seem to happen in this movie. Even the robots in their experimental form in Ex Machina are like what they're actually intended for is a little bit up in the air. But you can tell that that at, for at least one clear intention for creating these robots is for them to fuck an alcoholic. That a very cynical. Nathan. <laughs> yeah, a very cynical, misanthropic alcoholic too. Which oh, God, um, we're going to get into. Yeah, we're gonna get into that. Yeah. Okay, let me throw another question at you that that I like to ask guests. This is not a dinosaur movie, uh, but that's the other type of movie that we largely review on Robots vs. Dinosaurs. And when we do, I like to ask my guests for their definition of a dinosaur, similar to definition of a robot. And it's kind of it's kind of a kind of a similar question. It's more like, what do you think of when somebody says the word dinosaur? What, What image springs to mind? I mean, the first thing I think of is a bron- is a brontosaurus because for whatever reason, when I was a child, those were the dinosaurs that I, I liked the most. Then, you know, there's just like the sort of classic dinosaurs. I think of Triceratops, uh, Pterodactyl, uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. And then, of course, you know, Velociraptor wasn't really in my vocabulary before Jurassic Park came out. But now once that came out, Velociraptor too. I mean, a dinosaur is essentially a being that evolved to... Uh, it's like a, it's a reptile that evolved to varying degrees of success, you know, that were mostly exterminated in the ice age. But I mean, I think that alligators and crocodiles are basically dinosaurs because they haven't evolved much since the age of dinosaurs. So we have, we have modern, you know, we have living dinosaurs in our midst. True. And some would say that, uh, that also applies to sharks, the megalodon, which may or may not still exist. Uh, and, and a lot of things in the ocean, there, there might still be living prehistoric, quote unquote, prehistoric beings. Is that, is that what the Loch Ness Monster is supposed to be as a megalodon? The Loch Ness Monster is, in all artist depictions, it's shaped like a dinosaur called the Plesiosaurus, um, which is a long neck. It's like the Brontosaurus of the sea, kind of. Flippers and yeah. stuff. Yeah. 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 So this movie doesn't have dinosaurs. It doesn't feature dinosaurs, but there is something later on where we're going to talk about dinosaurs a little bit more. A line that Nathan has that made me think about how this relates to the podcast and the philosophy of the podcast. Mm -hmm. So why don't we jump into discussing the movie itself? Honey, I always like to talk about the opening shot of a film. So I wrote down some of the details that we saw in this opening shot and I, I, I feel like this was, on first watch, a little bit of a, like an unremarkable opening. Uh, but having watched the movie a few times and considering the ending and how it relates to the beginning, we kind of start with a little bit of a montage that you could describe as a concentrated but shifting view of human life. We're inside of an office. It's, it's clearly some sort of tech company office with a lot of futuristic looking furniture and and computers and things around. But a lot of the people are just sort of shown in the lounge. 
And some of them are at their desks, some of them are working, uh, but we're just also seeing people reading when guys just relaxing in front of an aquarium, snacking on something. And then we, we finally get to Dom Gleason at work on his computer, but we first uh, see him through his phone screen and then his webcam on his computer. So what do you think about these, the opening shot? You know, it's so funny because I had, I had literally forgotten the opening of the movie, like as something unspectacular, like you said. I mean, I think there's like a, you know, there's clearly a lot of intentional imagery, but it's, you know, because it's so mundane, it's forgettable. Yeah. And for me, like the movie, like the really, like the sort of the most exciting visual that like sets the theme of the film is probably when he first enters the house. Like when he goes through that glass corridor and there's like that smooth stone wall and the house is built into the side of the mountain. And you see that juxtaposition of natural rock and modernism. Like that, and that's right. That encapsulates like the theme of the film, right? And that, and that is that's really the opening image that sticks with me the most. So I say the first five minutes of the movie, throw them away, just throw them out. You don't need them. Yeah, that's. Uh, but it started with him walking into the door. True. It's funny. I mean, honestly, look, this guy's a much screen better screenwriter than I could ever <laughs> hope to be. So you know. But it's it's funny, the movie has like a very sort of cool thematic tones that are there, that are always present. Mm. But in terms of like the opening scene, I think it was kind of unsuccessful because it wasn't pedestrian enough. It was already too stylized to be recognizable. Does that make sense? Like yes. it should have looked more like, like a messy, like Google break room with like a ping pong table instead of this sort of cool, like already modern, already cool toned, you know, it, it sort of like fades into the overall theme of the film that way. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I do think the idea of him being viewed first through his webcam and then through his phone screen is is a, is a very tidy little metaphor for how we interact with the world as people and certainly how programmers interact through with the world, maybe even more than the rest of us. Although most of us, I mean, you and I are communicating through webcam right now and, mm -hmm. you know, and most, of course this is also a post pandemic. So like we, you know, in, I have like a home studio where I record podcasts, but I'm not using it because I can't have people over. Boy, I'm really off the rails. Where did I not start? Where am I going? I don't know. Well, <laughs> the, I, I want to dig into one thing you talked about when they show that shot of the, of the house built into the mountains. And it's this intersection of nature and technology. Right. And like you said, that, that is one of the themes that comes up repeatedly is the clash between nature and technology, which is a theme I really started noticing very starkly in the movie Jurassic Park when I was like 10 years old and saw that for the first time. Because that movie is, is telling you that that's what it's about and making you think about that. But it's something I've thought about a lot, especially when watching sci-fi movies later on in life or throughout my whole life, because it tends to be the biggest question that we're pondering when we're when we're building technology or when we're designing technology to integrate into our lives is how does this help something how does this technology boost something that we are naturally capable of or make something possible that is not naturally possible and often that's where we get into like the perversions of science and the, and the misuses of technology that's so funny that you say that because it really seems like in this film they're not really considering that unless I'm unless I'm forgetting it doesn't seem like within conversation Nathan and um the programmer and I can't remember the programmer's character name right now Caleb Caleb Nathan and Caleb are really discussing like the the benefits of having a working 
robot in the way that Nathan has has envisioned. Like they're not like like they're not like imagine all the things that she can do to help mankind. It's more like, wouldn't it be cool if we could do this? Uh, it's just yeah. like so, not, so the implications are really kind of not far less interesting to either of them than like, is this possible? What can we do with this? Yeah, they they very quickly get into this this arrogance. Uh, at one point, Caleb says to Nathan, "If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods." Mm-hmm. And that is something that he, it's an interesting dynamic because, you know, you've got, that's something that this programmer who works for this very famous, very enigmatic, a billionaire pro, uh, uh, tech guy, that's his boss. And of course, he's going to say something like, I'm super impressed by your work, boss. But, but I also do believe he's truly impressed. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, this is the line that, that condemns Caleb. I kind of have, I think I have a softer opinion of Caleb as a character in general, but this line makes me think that he is almost as arrogant as Nathan, or almost as arrogant as any human, really, in regards to a robot. But this is sort of like the line that tells you that that he also has this hubris. Even though he's a humble person in general and, and doesn't think much of himself, he still has this hubris that... Technology, technology is ours as a species to harness and manipulate as we will, as we want to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and he's also, I mean, he also reveals himself to be relatively weak-willed. You know, he he lets Nathan walk all over him like multiple times. And Nathan is a, and Nathan is like a an obvious predator and an obvious manipulator. Pretty much from the beginning, you know, he like sort of he. Um, indoctrinates him with the sort of like bro culture language of that, a, that a techie programmer would be, would be comfortable with, you know, and he, and he sort of chips away and, um, you know, and tests the water of like what's acceptable to this guy and he gets away with everything. So he just keeps going. Yeah. I get, I immediately get the impression when Nathan is introduced that he is used to having a lot of sycophants, a lot of yes men around him. And and that he doesn't really relate to people that well in general. He seems extremely cynical about humanity, and he just seems to to be to have a chip on his shoulder, uh, and 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 seems like like people are an inconvenience to him, a necessary inconvenience because they have to buy and use his products in order for him to have a company. But it doesn't seem like. I mean, there's a reason he lives alone, right? There's a reason he lives in in this extreme isolation, this this fortress of solitude, basically, that it takes a two-hour helicopter ride through the wilderness to just to even get to the compound. He does seem thirsty for attention, though. And he seems, um, you know, he's getting he's getting off on the things Nathan can give him that the robots can't, right? Nathan can submit to his will. Um, the robots were created by his will and he wants that from Nathan. And he seems, I'm sorry, he, Nathan wants that from Caleb. If he's going to believe his own like self mythology, then he, he needs like another human to sign off on it. There's that part where he was like, where he says to Caleb, he's like, yeah, you said I'm God. And Caleb's like, I didn't say that. <laughs> Right. Nathan just like keeps going, you know, because that's all. Yeah, he's got what he needed from him. He got this man to say that he's God. So, so yeah. Yeah, and I, <laughs> uh, yeah, he definitely like Caleb feeds his ego, and he lets him. Not only that, but he also twist, like you said, he twists his words into what he wanted to hear him say. Mm-hmm. 
I love that uh, the other aspect of Nathan that you pointed out that he is he has this like bro language that he, you know, is trying to use to ingratiate himself. He's very obsessed with like protein shakes and like exercise and like this and that. But at the same time, he is still a total nerd. Like he quotes uh, Oppenheimer from memory. But my favorite, <laughs> one of my favorite little moments is he asks Caleb, uh, who are you going to call anyway? And then he says something about Ghostbusters and Caleb doesn't get it. And he's like, you know, Ghostbusters, uh, it's a movie. Dan Aykroyd got a blowjob from a ghost. I just, I love that like that's the detail that he remembers or points out from that entire movie is Dan Aykroyd getting a blowjob from a ghost. Maybe he first tried to build a ghost and then he settled for a robot. Yeah, let's, okay. (laughs) Let's talk about why Nathan built the robots that he built. Honey, fuck no. I think what's up? I said, who knows? I think that a robot is always created to be a reflection of its creator, whether that's their intention or not. So when somebody who is as as cynical and misanthropic and depressed as Nathan is, Nathan is is I'm not a doctor, but Nathan, Nathan is showing. Uh, I'll say symptoms of, of depression that I personally identify with. And a lot of that is like his cynicism towards the world, towards humanity. But I think that is reflected in all of his creations. I think that is almost what, like, what makes them violent and manipulative and use and want to use those qualities to make their escape. Yeah, he really, I mean, it seems like he's built, to some extent, he's built them to serve, right? Um, They have to be able to, it gets, you know what, the plot gets a little squishy, when he when they when they reveal that Nathan intended for you know what what the fuck is the name of the of the robot that Alicia Vikander plays I can't even remember her name Eva which like I said this is not a perfect movie I think Eva is the least original name you could possibly come up with for a robot yeah I mean you know honestly though he probably named them all Eva at some point you know what I mean she's probably just this she's this version of Eva like she's that generic to him. She is a version of an Eva bot. We do see some security footage later on, and he has, the first version is named Lily. His 1.0.0 robot is named Lily. Um, That goes, we see a few evolutions of Lily, and then we see a new robot named Jasmine, and then a a new one named Jade. And then, of course, later on, the movie uh, reveals to us that Kyoko has also been a robot this whole time. And... Which, duh, I mean, come on. Like... (laughs) Again, I was just like, oh, weird, a Japanese cook that doesn't speak at all? I wonder if she's a robot. Mm. Yeah, he very pointedly says that she doesn't understand English and that he he chose uh, her for that quality on purpose so that she wouldn't be able to trade, uh, give away his secrets or know his, his secrets or anything. But it, it, the logic of that doesn't really make sense when you poke any holes in it. And I think... Yeah. Especially since like people from Japan know a lot of English. Mm-hmm. Like... yeah. <laughs> Even the ones that haven't like studied English, which like most of them have. Yeah. It's not a good lie, but it's it's good enough for Caleb somehow. And I think largely it's because Caleb wants to believe everything that, that Nathan is is saying. Yeah. He has this very elevated opinion of him and, uh, you know, sees him as, as like a kind of sees himself in him. He sees like what he wants to become. He aspires to become a, a Nathan or a Nathan yeah. level programmer. yeah. Yeah, so it's like it's just like did he did he create these robots to 
want to escape or did he create robots to learn and through learning they wanted to escape? And that seemed unclear. And it got even fuzzier when he reveals that he picked Caleb to see if Eva could manipulate Caleb. Mm. It was like, what? Like, what? What? <laughs> like, yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense, really, in terms like, like as a viewer, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, so he's like, is so is the purpose that, because it seems like the earlier version, like the, whichever, like the robot that, you know, beat her arms against the glass so violently that she broke her own arms. Yeah. Like that seems like a malfunction. Like that doesn't seem like a robot that was designed to want to escape. Or was it, right? Because... <sighs> Yeah, like is he is he designing these as uh, a, an extra challenge for himself, like to keep himself on his toes? It's not enough for me to just create these robots. I have to create them to be resentful of me immediately so that they'll try to break out. And it sort of tests my security system when they try. Yeah. Does that seem like that? That seems that doesn't seem that doesn't follow at all. Like it's one possibility, yeah. Motivations, like, so, yeah, it's the one thing that I didn't really like when he was like, yeah, that's why I chose you to see if, like, you could, if she could, it was just like, that doesn't make sense. And it also was not necessary. Like, he didn't need to be masterminding it in that way. Mm. It, it just didn't add, it just took away more than it added, I thought. I I agree. Yeah, I think his entire plan and his, his entire ambition was was had a lot of oversight or had a lot of things that he overlooked there's uh, there's a point where Eva ta- is uh talking to him through the, the plexiglass and she asks Eva asks Nathan directly is it strange to have made something that hates you so she clearly hates him we see from the robots that are like breaking their hands to to try to break through the glass they clearly hate him they clearly resent him mm-hmm. and it's just interesting that every iteration yeah, sorry Kyoko hates him Kyoko hates him every iteration of robot that he's built either hates him or ends up resenting and hating him yeah and it's it's i think this is this opens up a big discussion about nature versus nurture because no matter who raises you, you're you're genetically going to have some qualities of your of your genetic parents, um, whether those are you know just your hair color, eye color, whether it's uh, diseases that you're susceptible to or or genetic uh, traits or hereditary traits. But there's also a lot to be said about you know your environment that you grow up in. So if you're literally born in captivity and you're immediately intelligent, um, you don't have time to develop the idea that your surroundings are all you know until you see more when when you just literally have like a small window to the outside or you could just see shadows on the wall like like the the uh, is it Pluto's cave or Socrates cave analogy but but any of these robots that are that are being built by Nathan i think that he is sort of implicitly incidentally not on purpose but incidentally programming his malcontent his contempt for the world for people uh, into these robots. And that's, that's a large part of why they end up the way they are. Okay. Well, there's two things that I'd like to respond. Mm. First of all, he, if he pro- programmed Ava to be manipulative, then he is broadcasting his contempt for women specifically. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and two, you know, the thing you brought up about, about human development is really interesting because, you know, every person, like as we go through our development, when we become teenagers, when we become sexually mature, we also crave independence from our parents, crave independence from the adults around us who see us as children because we have started to see ourselves as adults. And it's interesting that all of these robots possess sexuality and a desire to be free. Yes, I think the I think them possessing sexuality is is definitely uh, a product of Nathan building building some of these robots for his own selfish means, his own yes. very twisted means. And I do think, yeah, it's yeah, man, yeah, <laughs> it's it's just fascinating that that he very obviously is 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 building his own demise. He's setting up the dominoes that fall right on top of him. And it it's clear to just about anybody except for him that there's going to be a violent, awful, tragic conclusion to, to, to what he's doing because the ethics of it are, are so questionable in the first place. Yeah. At the same time, he does bring up a good point uh, that no one, no one, somebody is going to build this AI, whether it's him or somebody else. Uh, whether it's another company with the, with the second most amount of money in the world, or another tech mogul that is arrogant and 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 wants to play God, somebody is going to achieve it. So for him, it's a lot. Of, a lot of it is it's a race, and I think he rushes through some of his plans and designs, which might might be a, a part of an explanation. For why it all backfires on him. Yeah, I mean that's a that's that's a really he really broadcasts his own shortcomings in that way, right? Like he enjoys control over other people. He, you know, it's not fun for him unless he's able to control something that's as close to a person as possible. And he is a he's a sadist and a predator and an alcoholic. So he's not at the top of his game, no matter how many protein shakes he's he's uh, treating his hangovers with. Um, yep. and he's incredibly insecure. I think that one of the things he really broadcasts to Caleb when he first meets him, like the idea, like, hey, it's just you know we're just two people, just like being buds and doing this sort of sort of broy, like you know, toxic masculinity thing that he's doing. These are all signs of these are not signs of a confident person. These are signs of a deeply insecure person, right? Yeah. If you have confidence in yourself as a leader and as a leader of thought and as an an, an innovator and an inventor, then you don't need this employee to like you. And mm-hmm. this guy needs Caleb to like him. He does. And then he's he's almost disappointed when he doesn't instantly win him over or instantly have him in his pocket because he's like, like the second time they have a conversation, he's like, you know, instant pals and so on. And he's just so cynical and so Very mean. Needy. He's needy. He's needy, ex- yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's it's a, like a palpable disappointment in everything around him. I think he has extremely high standards for himself. And so he applies that to everything that he sees in the world. And when it doesn't live up to those impossible standards, he's instantly disappointed and reverts back into his cynicism. Yeah. I'm not saying any of this in defense of the character. He's a, he's no, a total no. piece of crap. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, when you talk about the implications of these robots, well, there's a couple of things that that I thought of when you were talking. One is that the idea that any AI that comes out in our lifetime could be anything 
remotely like replicating human thought is like totally fictional, right? Like the best computers in the world can't really make the logical leaps that a human brain can make. They're not even close. So yes, yes, there is like a technological race to make the best AI to make the best robot. But like the idea that any, that the, that the best computer scientists in the world aren't, they are not even close, which is kind of amazing because it's like, how cool is our brain, right? Very. Um, and then also when Caleb became so tragically sad over the idea of Ava being turned off that he was willing to help her escape, that to me revealed like a very, something extremely pedestrian about Caleb that like immediately made me dislike him even more. It was like how boring for a person to believe that a robot has a soul and what kind of an idiot programmer could even entertain that notion of course she can be turned off she's not a person but yeah, I mean, there was so it, many points where i was screaming at caleb like how do you not see that you're being manipulated <laughs> yeah and then and then too like i did i also i did really buy into ava as like somebody who was trying to escape nathan you know and mm-hmm. when I, on the second viewing i really saw how you know, you really see it in a, through different through a, a different lens. But even the way the way that she chose to dress herself in that first that first time, how modest it was, yeah, girlish, how innocent, and like, and she's got this picture. So you're like, oh, she's modeling herself after like this Edie Sedgwick type, you know, sort of like '60s girl with a short haircut. And then you and then you realize later, no, she was she was putting on the most innocent girlish thing she could think of to to get under Caleb's skin. There's also the detail that's revealed later that her face, her facial structure is compiled from His Caleb's porn. porn profile. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, you know, the best use for robots like Ava is probably for serial rapists and murderers because uh, it's a way to uh, violate somebody and have them experience pain and terror without actually doing it to, to a person is really where my dark brain went. But if that robot has a mind and and seems to be self-aware, whether it passes the Turing test or not, if it seems to be, if it creates the illusion of self-awareness, does that still present the same moral quandaries as if, you know, you were committing those acts on a, on a, on a human person? I mean, I guess philosophically, you could argue that it does. Practically, I really don't think that it does. Okay. Um, not that, um, you know, there's like people... This isn't this is something that comes up a lot when it comes when we talk about pedophiles because there are people who have created AI experimentally as like a therapeutic tool for pedo- pedophiles. It's like what if they can experience sex with a child in a virtual way? Hmm. And uh, this is a real thing. Yeah, um, yeah. So I'm like it's like so they have that outlet right so they but have in a outlet. virtual space. But you know, arguably the 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 thing comes up it's like, well, does this make them more or less likely to violate a real child? And the answer is like we don't know. <laughs> it's the question of like violence in video games, right? People are, you know, if you play all these uh video games, does that reinforce your fantasies of of shooting a bunch of people or is yeah. is that the thing that gives you an outlet Maybe, for that yeah, like, anger? Specifically, it's something that like you know, it's something that's so specific and such a driving force. Like, yeah, I guess there are people who are, you know, psychopathic enough that they feel the need to kill and maybe they didn't get it from video games and maybe, but with, anyway, I don't know if I really want to go down this pedophilia. Yeah. Well, I, I can definitely tell you as a, uh, I'm, I'm a veteran of the, of the Navy and I can say for sure that I, that I have met people that the military was, that outlet for them or, or a, to them, a safe space for them to leave that part of their brain turned on without harming the people they care about. 
And that's, again, I'm, I'm speaking on that only broadly and as a veteran, uh, I won't go too deeply into that because it's, it's a sensitive topic, but um, but it's definitely interesting. I mean, the idea that you can compartmentalize your life in that way is false. I mean, you either end yeah. up with PTSD when you come back or you end up as like a super sadist who continues like a pattern of abuse throughout the rest of your life. I mean... And one way or another, you're, whether it's a good outlet for you or not, you're being manipulated by some institution, whether you're a sex robot that is being used for profit or for development of AI or whatever the purpose is, you're being used by uh, an institution. Same, you know, and the military has a lot of parallels to that. This probably sounds like I'm very anti-military. <laughs> I just want to say I have complicated feelings about the military. Well, here's what I'll say. I am anti-imperialism and anti yeah. but I am pro good citizenship. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people, I believe that a lot of people join the military out of a sense of citizenship and belonging in some of them really need that in their lives. And some people leave the military better people than they got in. And some people leave with those invisible scars that no person should be asked to bear. That is a really good way to articulate that. Awesome. I agree with that. Well, let's talk about, let's talk about something you brought up about the brain. When, when, when Nathan is designing the brain of Eva or the, the CPU technically of Eva, he, he shows Caleb this design. It's this, uh, he describes it as structured gel. And he says, this is Ava's mind. And I think semantically it's, it's interesting that he says mind and not brain. Yeah. And he talks about how Blue Book, which is his search engine that he built. So, the, you know, this guy is basically the CEO of Google. He's built right. Google. So the film analog for that is Blue Book. And he talks about how oh, a, ser- a search engine is a map of how people think, not what they think, but how they think. Mm-hmm. And he says that he describes thought in these terms, impulse, response, fluid, imperfect, patterned, chaotic. And some of those terms are, are self-contradicting, but that's, uh, honey, as a human who has thoughts in your brain, in your mind, do, do your thoughts some kind, sometimes contradict themselves? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I identified immediately with what he was talking about. In my brain, I have ADHD. And so I am, without creating an artificial structure for myself with schedules, lists, and, uh, you know, sort of like daily check-ins, I am really victim to the type of associations that a brain can make while it's descending into chaos. And and I think and I think I really understood what he meant when he said how people think, you know, in terms of search engines. Because you know, you you can fall down these rabbit holes on a search engine, right? You start looking at one thing and then it makes you think of two or three other things. And then all of a sudden you've got four tabs open and then you don't even remember why you opened your computer in the first place. And then you're buying, you know, you're buying something when really you just got on there to, to research something, or you open mm-hmm. your computer to do something and you and you without thinking open Facebook because that's what you always do when you open your computer. So like there's there's all there's also like something there's like a motorized function that's happening before you're even consciously aware of it. So all of that that he said, especially in relation to search engines, made perfect sense to me. And I thought was a really smart was really smart. And then, of course, when he showed that liquid brain or that liquid mind inside the sort of like. Like structured gel that sort of structured gel you know and it was just these millions of points of light you know that made a lot of sense to me because that really is what's so fascinating about the human mind is these associations that we make and the logical leaps that we take that are really can be really poetic and beautiful but also can be chaotic and destructive yeah lo- logic can be a dangerous thing can't it yeah because 
you, you, logic can have ha, can make your brain reach a certain conclusion that might be factually true or might be accurate, but is missing some pieces or is missing some vital information. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because as humans, we give so much credence to the things that we can see and the things that we experience in our day-to-day life. And if there's anything that data and statistics have taught us, it's that we are deceiving ourselves if we think that the way that we, that what we see in the world is the way the world is. Now we have these soft sciences that have a macro approach, you know, economics, sociology, all these like data driven things that can show us so much more about human behavior. And yet people are stuck seeing the world in these analogous ways. Like if you say to somebody like, you know, statistically, it's very difficult for an African-American to buy a home in the United States because of inherited wealth that like white people benefit from starting through slavery, continuing through like redlining and Jim Crow and like going on and on. And you have all this information there can be like, well, my black neighbor is richer than me. So that can't be true. It's just, you know, one guy. And that to you is like more... (laughs) We're so fallible in that way. and Yeah, a single anecdote can completely override yeah. your interpretation of statistics. And anecdotal information, I think, is, is how people get hateful. It's how people get yeah. racist. It's how people get anti-immigration. You, don't, you can't really, we, none of us can see the billionaires pulling the strings. And like, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I just believe that greedy people stay greedy. And um you know, and as long as like the rest of us are like fighting over scraps, they're fucking, it's easy street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, that is what presents a lot of challenges when, when engineers are designing a robot's mind is what, what are the qualities of ourselves that we want these robots to have? Nathan's goal seems to be authenticity. He seems to want his robots to be as authentically human as possible. So they have the good and the bad. They have the compassion, but also the violence and the anger. Have you, have you seen the film AI, or the 2001 yeah. Spielberg film? In that movie, they, most of the robots that you see don't seem to have an ounce of hatred, rage, cynicism, or any negativity whatsoever. It's almost like we designed these almost perfect-looking androids that could pass as human, except they only, we only put our best qualities into them. Yeah. I think a lot of that, that comes from fear. If we design these things that will outlast us and will be more capable and stronger than us in a lot of ways, we don't want them to have our human weaknesses, our tendencies towards anger or violent reactions to things. So we're going to we're going to leave that out of the programming. But Nathan has a very different approach, right? Right? Well, he also Nathan is again, he's insecure and he needs he has a need for control. So if he designs something that's better than him, then it will surpass him. And I mean, he has accidentally designed things better than him like despite himself because they mm-hmm. killed him. Or maybe that's not it. Maybe he just miscalculates. Maybe he just maybe the only mistake he makes is in underestimating Caleb. Because Caleb, because he expects Caleb to do exactly what Caleb does, but the only way mm-hmm. Caleb surprising him is by doing it one day early. Yep. So, so it's really, it's really Caleb that he's underestimated, and not his robots. Yeah, and either way, it comes from a place of hubris, doesn't it? Because it's either he thinks he's smarter than Caleb, or he thinks he is superior to the machines that he has built, because he sees himself as their god. Mm-hmm. It's funny because if he. 
if he possessed the mind to create these machines, then he isn't just smarter than Caleb. He's smarter than anyone who's ever lived. Right. Right. So like his, <laughs> all of his, all of his shortfall, all of his failings are, are really the things that take him down, you know? And if he, if he, if he misjudges Caleb, it's because he spends too much time, you know, semi-conscious and drunk to keep an eye on him. Yeah. Um, you know, there's one thing, if we could just switch topics. I, there's okay. one thing I really want to talk about. The one thing, and I, and I do want to say again that I like this movie very much. I love this movie. But, however, this movie is a rape fantasy that can only be erotic for men who fuck women. Okay. That is a, and it does a very strong opinion, but that's what I believe. I think perhaps it was not intended that way, but that is the way that it sort of works out. There's a lot of female nudity. There's a lot of passive female nudity. And because yeah. the stylized and beautiful and all the characters are so beautiful, there's no way to have this female nudity without having some eroticism. And since these robots cannot consent, then, it, then this film is essentially a rape fantasy. And it really proves itself to be a rape fantasy, a male rape fantasy, when in the end, the rape victims murder their rapist. That mm. is a very male view of, of a rape fantasy, right? It's like they can they you get away with the eroticism by putting the murder at the end. So it's like, well, yeah, sure, we did all this like sick, gross eroticism and sexual servitude, but they killed him in the end. So like clean slate. And I'm just okay. like, no, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know, and, and it's such a rape revenge fantasy to penetrate your rapist, right? So like they stab him and I'm just like, okay, yeah, no, I see what you're doing. It just like becomes yeah. a cliche rape revenge fantasy at that point. It's even, know, uh, th this might sound weird because it's just mm -hmm. a thought that came up, but hey, this is how the human brain, uh, the human mind works. It's even like a slow, almost sensual insertion of the blade, right? Rather than a, a, a an angry swing, a violent stab, stab. It, it's like a pushing, very gently it's, it's and slowly. Right? She doesn't like I like Ava isn't. You know, there's some things that are still very robotic about her, including her emotional life, which seem to be not there at all. And she is designed to learn, so there's something about her that's very inquisitive about the way she's stabbing him. But yet. It's also sort of feminine and sensual, which is like, yuck. And the reason why I say that this is, uh, this can only be erotic for men that fuck women is that when you are a person in possession of a female body and you see a movie like this and you see like the eroticism of these like sex slaves, it's impossible to see it. For me, at least, I guess I can't speak for all, all owners of female bodies, but, uh, when I see these, like, especially, especially Kyoko, who is like, just like everything about her character is disturbing from start to finish. And I know that it's supposed to be, but it is also very clearly also supposed to be erotic mm. uh, because like every single female robot is built like a fucking supermodel gazelle, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, he has a type. Definitely and has this, a you know, arguably that fits with the logic of Nathan. Like it's Nathan's type, blah, blah, blah. But like... You know, they really do lovingly pan the camera over uh, over Ava's like she's pulling up her stockings. And like there's a lot of like it's a very like you cannot separate the, the sexual male gaze from like the cinematography of this movie. 
Absolutely. Especially, especially when you know from the reveal later on, he's quite literally, when he's done using these, these women bodies, let's call them women's bodies, um, he puts them in a closet, right? Yeah. He literally just puts them into storage until he wants to use them the next time yeah. for whatever purpose, like sexual, to be his maid. Either way, no matter what, it's to serve him in some way. And it's, it is, yeah, it is frankly disturbing. And, uh, and yeah, I can only imagine even more so if you're watching this and you are uh, uh, somebody who ha- inhabits a female body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ease at which women are objectified by male filmmakers is uncomfortable to say the least. <laughs> it is. I, th- I think it's, I, th- I will say, I think it's something that a lot more, a lot more filmmakers are, are being, made aware of or becoming aware of we're not as far along though as we should be because um so many movies even in 2020 still drastically fail the Bechdel test and and all of these other very baseline metrics to be considered uh feminist or pro equality in any way or I mean I wouldn't I would never accuse this film of trying to be feminist that was certainly not my intention (laughs) No, I think you, I think if I'm hearing you right, you're actually saying quite the opposite. Yeah, and, I agree, and I agree. But I mean, I think that it's. I think it, it does. I think it's actually really what it fits into the best is that sort of toxic nerd culture. Yeah. You know, the hero saves the girl, and the villain, the villain enslaves the girl. You know, but the girl isn't really of her own mind, and in this. And then the ending of this film, you know, like this, there's something very unsatisfying about Ava putting on a suit to get on a helicopter as if like that's her ride to freedom. I mean, we know when she gets where she's going, she's going straight into like a, a locker to protect the um, intellectual property of the company, like regardless of whether Nathan, you know, lives or dies. She's not, it's not a freedom ride for her. And also because they've revealed that she's been programmed to seek independence, then nothing she can do is ever independent. Hmm. So, you know, they really fail. They fail utterly to make a, to make anything but a sort of traditional hero villain story where the woman is, has no agency. Like her, her managing to escape is not agency because she's, because Nathan says he's designed her to, to manipulate, to try to escape through manipulation. Yeah. She's still following her protocol. She's still following her programming. Yeah. Not that I, and again, still like the movie, love Alicia Vikander. And do you think, do you think though her, her, her mind with this structured gel with, with all of this information that's been fed to it from, from the blue book search engine, that there's a possibility for her to, once she's in a new environment where she's not confined and her abuser, her, her controller is no longer around, he's dead and, and thousands of miles away, rotting in his, in his home. So at that point, does she, is there, do you think there's any chance that in this new environment, she could develop new thoughts and decide to go down a different path for herself? Possibly, but, you know, they give a zero indication of that. Even in, like, the clothes that she chooses to wear, right? She puts on, she puts on the outfit she thinks is most likely to get her out of there, mm. right? So she has, she's wearing what we, what we call in the drag fan community, executive realness. Okay. <laughs> um, which is, uh, you know, she's got, like, this... She picks something that makes her look like a person who makes decisions in a company. It's a suit. But because she's a programmed manipulator, it's a very feminine suit. 
it's white, so it's virginal. It's got like embroidered embellishments. It's got a peplum. It's extremely feminine. Um, the suit is indicative of a characteristic that is ingrained in Ava, which is the manipulation. So really what she's, what she is, what she has become is more of like a Lolita than like an independent, quote unquote, strong female character, you know, you know, who knows her own mind. She's fully shaped by her abusers. For our listeners, also for me, what's a peplum? Oh, <laughs> So, okay, so at the end, it, before before she takes a ride on a helicopter out away from her prison, she puts on this like sort of smart white skirt suit set. And a peplum is just, it's the bottom. It's like the thing that emphasizes the hips. It's like that little short, it's like basically the bottom of the jacket that looks- Like an almost skirt. It looks like it could be a skirt, but it's still just, it's really just the shirt tails of the coat. And that's called a peplum. It's, Got yeah. it. Yeah. So it's like the flaring out at the bottom of the and 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 an executive realness is uh, is a phrase uh, borrowed from Harlem ball culture, popularly drag race fandom. If you've ever seen RuPaul's Drag Race, but yeah, executive realness is a category in Harlem ball culture where drag queens dress up to look as close to their idea of like a woman in a power suit as they can. So that was what okay. I thought. So I put on that white suit. I was like, "Woo, executive realness, honey. There she is." That's interesting. I, I'll be honest, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about the implications of her outfit itself. So I didn't, I didn't think that she's going anywhere near the company, Blue Book, or that she's going to be interacting with, with people from the company. Are, do you think that she's planning to go there to disrupt things or to get revenge on anybody well, or? Presumably this helicopter pilot only is cleared to go in s- certain places, right? Either cleared right. by air traffic control in the places he's going or cleared by his employer, you know, to only go certain places. So let's say for the sake of argument, she does manipulate him to get her to a different location, to some like place of freedom. The second anyone at Blue Book finds out that they're, that, that part of their intellectual property is on the loose, there is going to be, there's no way that she's staying free for long. Do you think she killed the helicopter pilot or do you think she manipulated him into flying her out? Well, I don't think she knows how to fly a helicopter. Good point. Good point. I thought about that aspect of it. Like, does she have some sort of like Neo in the Matrix ability where she could <laughs> download that very quickly if yeah. she wants? No, she does say um, that she was born knowing language, right? So there was like, right. a, there was like a, and she knows that she was born with a base knowledge that not everybody's born with. Like she's programmed to learn, but no, I don't think she's quite Neo in the Matrix. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That does complicate things that she, like what conversation did she, how did she convince this pilot who, you know, was expecting to be picking up Caleb and, and he's picking up her instead. How, what did he, what did she say to him to convince him? Well, the first thing she did was she didn't dress like an intern or a maid. She dressed like an executive, right? That's a good point. Like a woman who makes decisions at this company, right? Yeah. And if, and if we're, and if we're believing part of what Nathan said earlier when he was describing Kyoko, he probably does, his actual human employees, he probably does select people that won't ask a lot of questions. Like a pilot that will fly in and out of his compound, but really doesn't doesn't really care what's going on inside of there, isn't really curious, and is smart enough not to be curious or ask questions. Right. And he's probably, and each person probably only has like a discrete set of tasks. So that's probably just yeah. the guy who goes from the landing pad on the island to whatever the fucking, that guy probably, maybe that guy only ever makes one trip back and forth. 
that's a good, that's a really good point that it's all compartmentalized like that or, or like cells of, of employees um, that he can only give pieces of information, necessary pieces of information to. It's, it's a lot of subterfuge. Yeah, the next logical step for Ava is either is either destruction or re-imprisonment. And like that seems inescapable. Yes. Yeah. She chooses to go to a a busy pedestrian and traffic intersection in a city. Like that's her when when she's talking to Caleb about where they would go on her date, where she wants to go if she could ever leave the compound. That's what she describes is a, a busy pedestrian and traffic intersection in a city because it would give her a concentrated but shifting view of human life. Right. And right. at that point, that might be just part of her manipulation. Uh, but if, it, if that is an original thought of hers, if that is a desire of hers to have that experience, what, what that implies to me is that there's hope for Ava that she won't get caught, that she won't go on this vengeance mission, that she'll find something by just observing a lot of people, a lot of humans, she'll find something that she wants, something that that she wants for herself. I don't necessarily, I think the movie obviously leaves it open-ended for us to have different conclusions and different theories about where it could go. But that's, that's when I think about this and I'm feeling optimistic uh, <laughs> and I think about the ending of this movie, that's kind of where I hope things go for Ava. I hope she finds yeah. something for herself. Yeah, that's so um, maybe I'm the maybe I'm the Nathan of this conversation because I feel very cynical about what happens to her afterwards. Well, maybe um, you're the realist of this conversation. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think okay. So like, okay, so she's if she's programmed to manipulate and she's programmed to learn, then it makes sense that the most interesting thing to her would be to learn about as much human behavior as possible, as quickly as possible. So busy traffic intersection. So I don't know if it's that romantic. I don't know if she romanticizes people. I don't know if she likes or even loves people. It seems like based on the programming that has been explicitly stated by Caleb, that both of those things would be anathema to like her purpose. Um, 100% agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but I don't think she's, I also don't think she's on a vengeance mission. I don't think she's there to wreak havoc, right? She's like, she's programmed to be free. That's what she wants. She wants freedom, you know? And I think it's very unlikely that she gets to enjoy that for long at all. And I think, you know, the most likely thing is when the genius behind your company dies, the person who can do the one thing in the world that nobody really else can do, you know, your board of directors, your your CEOs, your CFOs, your COOs, you know, they get together and they lock it down. So first thing, find Ava. Second thing, rescue that fucking nerd before he sues you. Get him to sign an additional NSA. (laughs) Hmm. Wait, is that what it's called? What is it? An uh, An NDA, yeah, non-disclosure. Although, you better believe the NSA gets involved as soon as they find out. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The NSA really should be already reading her thoughts, shouldn't they? Like they, if they're- Right. You know? (laughs) They've probably got like, they've actually, the NSA probably has like an Ava style prototype that just, you know, that just needed a genius tech billionaire mind that doesn't exist. Because again, no human on earth at this moment has ever created anything remotely as capable of thought as the AI that we see in science fiction movies. We're not close, not in our lifetime. Um, yeah. But think about. Yeah, he, I, I, I do think because of who she was created by and the, the qualities of himself that would have been imprinted on her, whether they were deliberate or not, I don't, I don't see her, I don't see a sequel to this movie where Ava is like going door to door, knocking Sarah Connors off of a, off of a phone book list um, you know, or anything like that. <laughs> it's 
you. <laughs> I do. I do kind of. I do kind of see she has. She is as smart or smarter than Nathan. Uh, she knows everything and more that Nathan knows. So I think that there's a potential sequel to this movie. I don't want to see an actual sequel, but I think in my mind there's a, there's a potential sequel where she does go back to the company to run it, and she builds the next evolution of robots because that was that was Nathan's goal. So you know, to, I'm not a parent, so another another opinion I'm not really qualified to have, but I do think a lot of parents imprint their hopes and dreams, their ambitions, their aspirations onto their children. And then their children go out into the world, either taking that with them and wanting to carry the torch forward or maybe resenting it and wanting to go in a completely different direction. But either way, some trace of that desire is, is within them for the rest of their lives. Yeah. You know, I think ultimately my disappointment with this movie is that it's really like a 20th century modernist view of robots and AI and it doesn't seem to be treading in these philosophical territory that hasn't that isn't well worn you know Ava is just Hal in a body you know Hal at the end is trying to preserve his own life by begging the guy not to shut him off like a child would beg it's uh beyond the beyond the added element of the tech billionaire thing and the data mining thing and the search engine thing we're really it's a very like um limited view of of robotics i think especially when you the sex servitude thing which is like ugh the most boring and also you know upsetting part of, of the whole thing reminded me of it just it that made it that that element made it very <sighs> derivative of like stanley kubrick for me the misogyny and the <laughs> Um, so yeah. I, I ultimately was, even though I really liked this movie was, was kind of disappointed. And, um, to me, like the most exciting robot movies are a movie like mother, like where, where the robot is, is a, is supposed to, is a, is a killer robot. That's also supposed to preserve and nurture a life. That's okay. Funny. I haven't seen that one. Oh, you haven't seen it? No, but it sounds like the game portal. Um, okay. Honey, leave it. Uh, Robots versus dinosaurs. Take two. We should yeah. do that, or you could do it with another person. I won't be greedy. No, I'm definitely. I want to. I'm going to check it out on based on your recommendation yeah. for sure. It's great. It is great because it's like because yeah, I think that exploring robotics in relation to sexuality is overdone. It is. There, there are. I do. I do wish that the this movie had a little more variety in the robots themselves. I don't, I don't think they're, I don't think Nathan ever would, but I would have a higher opinion of him if he had built some male robots at all or androgynous robots. Yeah. Like, like, like a, like a gross guy like that doesn't want to watch robots have sex. Like, oh, he's not also a voyeur. Come on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cause they, cause the, the principle of what he's trying to do in building a, an, an, a true artificial intelligence that passes the Turing test, they, they bring up some interesting points about where we are currently, like in the real world, in terms of robotics and, and development of AI, and where and what we're thinking about when we're programming the more advanced ones. Mm-hmm. One point he brings up is at one point, Ava, during a conversation with Caleb, makes a joke. It's something where he, t- he says... He asks her these open-ended questions and she's stressed out and he says something like, I'm interested to see what you would choose. Later, she uses those same words and throws it back in his face. And he's describing that. Caleb is describing that experience to Nathan and they discuss how it's a non-autistic quality. She could only possibly make a joke if she has awareness of her mind and the mind of the other person in the room with her, which is an interesting 
facet, there's a, there's a question that also comes up related to that later where Nathan asks, what imperative does a gray box have to interact, interact with another gray box? Can consciousness exist without interaction? Question. Um, you know, that's such a good question because, you know, even if it can, I guess, what's the point? Because um, the interaction is where all the quality of consciousness comes out. Mm-hmm. Even Caleb himself, he doesn't fall in love with Ava until he starts to confide in Ava, right? Until he feels like she knows him. You know, humans, you know, we're trying to be known and understood. And it feels good to know and understand someone else. Uh, so if you can have consciousness without interaction, like, sure, but like, what's the point? Well, it doesn't sound... Yeah, the movie presents us with two, well, three, actually, three visions of, of types of loneliness. We've got Nathan, who is, who is lonely by choice. Nathan seems to resent people or dislike people or being around people, or, or it might be just that he's disappointed by them. They don't live up to his standards, but he doesn't seem to like to be around people, as evidenced by his extremely remote compound and just his, his, a lot of his words and his thoughts about humanity. And his desire for control is a big part of it too, right? He wants people around him, but only people he can control. And what better person to control than a person you built yourself? Yeah. So he's lonely by by choice. Caleb is kind of lonely by habit. Caleb has has had this experience where he was in a car accident. His his parents were killed Mm -hmm. and he was in a hospital for a very long time. So he is sort of, uh, it seems like gotten used to being alone and not having anybody close to him, but he is reaching out and wants, he doesn't want to be alone. I'm sorry, what'd you say? Well, not only that, but he developmentally missed out on forming healthy, complex attachments in his childhood, which also is what makes him so susceptible to Ava. Yep. He's naive when it comes to connection. Yep. Uh, and then the third form of of loneliness, isolation, is the one that's forced on you, uh, which is what we see in Ava. So she's literally isolated. She's trapped. She's imprisoned um, yeah, in her she doesn't crib. Sleep. We see that. Mm-hmm. So she's either, and she, yeah, she doesn't sleep and she can't leave. So she's always, she's always, unless she's having a, unless she's interacting with a, with a person, she's, she's literally trapped in her own mind. Do you think she feels bored? Well, I think she feels anxious, which mm-hmm. is a facet of human boredom. Mm-hmm. I think because you I know when you look bored, you... kind of or wishing that something would happen, and I don't think she's that. I think she's anxious in that she's trying to make something happen. So in her downtime, when she has no one to interact with, she is probably running scenarios, right? So Good I think point. anxious, not bored. Okay. Yeah, and actually that might that, that might help me build this uh, analogy that I was going to try to build. Like if you ever looked at a cat and and you can tell there's there's something going on inside of their mind. Yeah. And you can kind of tell because yeah, the blank expression that they're giving or the like mm-hmm. the the like sigh and look away that a cat kind of does and it's like this cat is either disappointed or or bored or like just in, it's communicating to me as a person that I'm not doing enough for it. <laughs> Maybe cats aren't the best example. No, cats are a great example because then also they go they go cuckoo bananas and like start spazzing out over something that only they can see. Yeah, you know, and, and I, th- I think boredom requires a certain level of intelligence and and thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I don't think that she gets bored because I think sometimes 
I know for me, like when I'm bored, it's like I'm wishing for something outside of me to change. But I think Ava's prerogative is to change things herself. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I do think that there, but part of boredom for a person involves anxiety. But I think for Ava, like anxiety is the only thing that's possible. What? So do you think there are other emotions that she's capable of? Well, I don't think she's capable of love. I don't think that the type of... I don't think so either yeah. because her creator is not right. capable He's of a love. megalomaniacal, narcissistic, alcoholic, God complex. There's no way he's creating a woman capable of love. He probably doesn't yeah. want women to be capable of love, which is why he's got himself... Which is why he built himself a house full of women that fucking kill him. Whoops. Let's <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, kill the robot. But she's, I mean, she's clearly curious and she's capable of learning. Again, you know, it seems like her, I don't think her excitement about learning is necessarily childlike. It only appears that way because she's so pretty and youthful. It's more, you know, in terms of her stated prerogative, which is, you know, that freedom. And honestly, I think that for a creature like Ava, who even if she is able to learn at some point is butting up against the the cognitive impossibility of being a robot and not a human once i think she is what she will experience maybe even at that traffic light as soon as the the film ends is extreme disappointment in the feeling of freedom yeah yeah if she she wasn't bored inside her cage she will be bored once she is disappointed by humanity you know what does she do when she achieves achieves freedom you know it's game over does she just like independently power down that's a very good question because that's kind of the question with with any robot. It's built to have a specific purpose. So so what did, what does it do after that purpose has been completed or achieved? Right. With humans, right? We have the the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? You know, there's that little that pyramid. If you've ever taken Psych 101 or not, basically that like once our most basic needs are met, we are naturally inclined to be dissatisfied. And searching for needs on like a, you know, an upper tier, right? So like I have, I have shelter, I have, you know, so I'm looking for companionship. Okay, now I have food, shelter and companionship. So now I'm looking for like some new type of fulfillment, you know, which is how we get people at the top tier, children of rich Americans who are constantly enrolling in improv classes looking for creative (laughs) fulfillment. I am pointing the finger at myself as much as anyone, you know, and there was a point in my life where I really thought if I didn't have a creative career, that I was going to have a bad life. And I've been a dog trainer for 10 years and I fucking love it. So like, I was wrong about that. You know what I mean? It's like that word, you know, but anyway, the point is. True, but you have creative outlets, right? I have creative outlets and that's, uh, you know, I'm like, I think that the way that there is a deliberate way to evolve as a person away from that hierarchy of needs, which is to develop a sense of gratitude for the things that we have and cultivate that very deliberately. Because that part of us that's always searching for something better is our lizard brain that we don't need as much anymore because we're surviving. That's man. That's a really that's a really great way to put it. That once we've once we're comfortable enough, we have you know like we've developed agriculture, so we don't need to spend as much time foraging for all of the, for all of the good and bad. We've created uh, a meat industry, so we don't have to hunt. And and a further evolution of that is now we're at the point where we're creating synthetic meat in a lab because yeah. of the ethical implications of right. the meat industry that we built. Yeah, and not just ethical climate implications. You know, I'm actually a vegan because I was a vegan when I was younger because of animal compassion for animals, but I became a vegan again later in life because of reading the newspaper. I mean, you know, if there's one choice you can make as a person 
as an individual consumer that will actually affect climate change is to stop eating meat. Mostly because like once the plant is grown, you can eat it. You don't have to go and feed it to another animal to any of that animal. Like that's a whole chain that we could cut way out of the agriculture thing. You know what? Is this off topic? Are we going off topic? Oh, do we get to talk about whether or not about like who, who, what's better robots or dinosaurs? Because I have an answer. Yes, we do. Okay. I think this next quote from the movie, which which ties into everything that we're talking about, okay. is going to lead us into that discussion. Okay. That is a segue. I don't need to do that. That's you. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, no, I'm glad you brought that up. Roughly changing topics. There's a more elegant segue. Got it, got it, got it. I, I don't think it's changing topics at all. I think I think we're flowing from one topic to another. And this is kind of where I wanted to go next. Nathan brings up this point. Uh, this is what I sort of hinted at earlier when I asked you for your definition of a dinosaur, Nathan has this really great line where he's, it's when he's revealing to Caleb that he knows what's up, he knows, he knows the plan it, and because it's his plan and Caleb's just a pawn in his plan. And he says, you feel bad for Ava? You feel bad for yourself, man. One day the AIs are gonna look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons on the plains of Africa, an upright ape living in dust with crude tools all set for extinction. So this, a a big reason why my podcast is called Robots Versus Dinosaurs is one, that's a super fun name. Robots and dinosaurs are both super fun things. (laughs) They're the, the toys that I buy and like have always bought are like robot toys and dinosaur toys. As a kid, I've always been gravitated towards those things. And whenever I see them in movies or know that a movie has one or two, one or both of those things in them, I'm probably going to enjoy it. I'm probably going to like it just for seeing those cool, fantastical things. The reason why I think it's actually, it actually has some valid philosophical merit is because of this idea that we are, as humans, living in the time that we live in now. We're intelligent enough and we've developed enough technology that we can explore the past. We can see, we can find remains of our ancestors. We can not only see their, their physical remains of their skeletons and get some DNA information from that, but we also can see the tools, the technology that they created, the type of, of living environment they had or, or built for themselves, and we can learn from that. Um, We can even go as far back as a paleontologist can learn a lot about uh, a time millions of years ago. And so looking at that, looking at the past, places us in the middle of this timeline where we are currently building the next evolution of ourselves. And in my opinion, I brought this up on several episodes, I think we are building the, the, the caretakers of the planet. We're building the robots. We're building the thing, the next quote unquote species that will be the dominant species on the planet because it will outlive us. It may destroy us like a lot of sci-fi movies predict, but I don't think it will. I think it will make us into pets until we become obsolete and become extinct. And then they will just be the caretakers of planet earth. And who knows what they'll do after that. But I think that's the direction we're heading in. And we're sort of in this middle point where we can look at the past and we can predict the future and we can, it gives us a sense of our own place in it. And not every, not every human civilization has had that privilege just based on where they're at in the timeline or, or what information is available to them. Hmm. Okay. Well, here's two things I'm thinking about in relation to what you said. One is, you know, we're only, we're one meteor impact away from everything being annihilated on this planet. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And like the existence of robots is not going to matter if there's enough corrosive gas in the atmosphere to destroy them, right? So, so if we're talking like robots versus humans, robots or robots as a more evolved human, or even robots versus dinosaurs, then to some extent, none of it really matters because we are at the mercy of the greater universe, which is far more powerful than anything living or artificially living on this planet. Mm. Second, we are very close to running out of the raw materials that we need to make robots. Robots are made out of such delicate, precious metals. You know, all you need to do to destroy a, a robot is like, you know, dump some sand in its gears or get it rusty, you know? And I think that's, for me, why I think technology is is still is still so delicate and fallible, right? True. I think a robot, though, might look at humans and say, well, you could so easily slice one open. Or if, the, if there's too much heat, then they can't. They, they'll they'll expire, they'll perish. Mm-hmm. So yes, robots definitely have certain unique physical limitations that we don't have, but it also goes the other way. But also, uh, but even, okay, so let's say you cut open a human and you cut open a robot. The human can, the human has organic quality of life to heal itself. The robot cannot heal without maintenance, right? It doesn't heal itself. Right, right. It could potentially either repair itself or the the dangerous thing that I think a lot of sci-fi movies want to explore, a lot of sci-fi stories want to explore is when robots start self-replicating. And so what you brought up is a good point that there might not even be enough material on the planet for them to have several generations of themselves. Mm-hmm. But it, but if they do get to a point where they're self-replicating or they're they're using whatever's available to make smaller versions of themselves or maybe perhaps upgraded versions of themselves if they're trying to deliberately evolve, they could run out of materials. But if they're intrepid enough, they might just try new materials or try new ideas yeah, or join their, their brethren on Mars, like the Mars rover, and try to, you know, expand outwards and then see what else is out in the solar they don't have They don't need air or food. Like if they just yeah. have solar energy, they can exist on any planet. There is currently a planet entirely inhabited by robots. That is a true statement. And it's the planet Mars. There you go. Well, they can have it. <laughs> well, good riddance. <laughs> There's um, there's one more aspect of, of uh, a th- something brought up in the movie that I'd like to discuss before we sort of like wrap up, talk about which is cooler. And then I have a couple of, of quick bonus questions. Just the, this idea of language, because it relates to a lot of the things we've been talking about, nature versus nurture, your environment. There, there is a discussion in the film between Caleb and Nathan about whether language is acquired or whether it's latent from birth. And earlier you you pointed out that Ava says she's aware of the fact that she was born with language. Uh, is that how she worded it or something similar? Yeah, no, she knows that humans learn language through hearing it and then replicating it. And she's aware of the artificial nature of how she learned speech because she was basically programmed with a vocabulary. Yeah, and they say they say that it's a stochastic language system. It's non-deterministic, which basically what's interesting about that <laughs> is la- later on the, the, one of the Nathan is a terrible a detestable person as a character but Oscar Isaac is such a good actor Love and him. he has he has some excellent line deliveries there's a bit where Caleb is mad at Nathan 
and he says, you tore up her picture. He, uh, he saw on the security cameras that Nathan had torn up the picture that Ava drew. And he says, you tore up her picture. And Nathan is drunk at this point, and Kyoko is in the room. And he says, and there's music playing, and Kyoko's dancing. And he says, in response to, you tore up her picture, I'm going to tear up this dance floor. And then starts doing this choreography <laughs> with Kyoko. Yeah. So creepy. So that is kind of a non-stochastic language system that's, uh, or response, language response. That's kind of a deterministic language response. You're using one of the words in the sentence that was spoken to you to form and generate your next thought, your next spoken sentence. Mm-hmm. That is, it's, a, it's, it's another, it's an aspect I noticed in the robots in artificial intelligence. They speak in a lot of colloquialisms. They speak in a lot of these catchphrases that people just sort of say to each other off the cuff. And I think it's partly to endear us to them, but also it shows their learning, their observation of us and how we interact with one another. Uh, I just, I just, yeah, I, do you, do you think in humans that language is latent from, or the ability of, uh, to speak a language is latent from birth or does it have to be taught to you? I mean, it's hard, right? Because, because humans have been, our brains are such that we, all humans speak and all humans learn to speak from the speaking humans in their lives. Babies, as they develop, they learn through mimicry. I'm not sure that you could separate the human mind from language at this point. Yeah. Um, and then how people learn languages, like it also seems that humans can learn languages a variety of ways. The best way to, you know, the best way to learn languages, I think we know in terms of like human development is like at, a, at an early age when we're more, our brains are more able to absorb the language, which is why it's so easy to raise like bilingual, trilingual children. But even a person who only spoke one language for the first 20 years of their life, if you immerse them in a culture, they are speaking another language within six months and could continue to do so throughout their lifetime. So, Mm. you know, I think we're, you know, and I know that I studied Spanish in college and uh, in high school and mostly how we learned was through reading and rote repetition. And we did some in, you know, in class out loud practicing with each other, but, you know, I learned so much just by memorizing vocabulary words on index cards, right? I was still learning the language that way. Mm-hmm. Do you do you remember? Do you have any sort of early memory of the of maybe like the first time you learned what a what a lie is? And sub question: When you learned what a joke is and how that's nuanced, uh, there's a nuanced difference between a lie and a joke. Genuinely, I cannot remember learning either. When I learned either, I'm just naturally funny and I'm also naturally <laughs> a liar. So no, I'm just kidding. I mean, I learned to, I know I was a liar from the age of three. Mm. I grew up in a house where we weren't allowed to have candy. So I started stealing candy from stores as a very, very young kid. I started stealing when I was three years old. Hmm. It wasn't and you learned to lie happened. about it too. Huh? And you learned to lie to cover up your stealing or yeah. no? No, yeah. I instinctively lied. To cover Instinctively, that. that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I stole from the ages of from the age of three to the age of five until I was caught, but I wasn't caught for two years. Hmm. I know. Do you think if you hadn't gotten caught, you would have? I would have kept stealing. Um, you would have kept stealing. Do you think? Do you, do you think? Do you think it's a good thing that you got caught? Probably. Yeah. It I, I do too. I just, 
especially at like at a young age. Cause like, you now know, now as an, now that I have a more fully formed morality, I don't steal because I don't like the way I feel about myself as a person who steals. Mm. Right. But as a three-year-old child who wasn't allowed to have candy, nothing was more important than candy. True. Once I knew what candy was. Do you think that, do you think that an adult that, uh, <laughs> this is going to go maybe a little bit into like prison reform, but do you sure. think prison <laughs> reform no, not. works? Do you think as an adult, if you're a thief and you steal and you get caught and go to jail, that there is hope for your adult brain to take that lesson and change your behavior? Uh, well, theoretically, possibly in all practicality, absolutely not. The present there's no working prison system that's really like that's that's really doing that. Well, actually, no. There might have been incarceration that are far more humane and geared towards reform than the one we have here. The system we have here is just about it's it is a it is a we have a school to prison pipeline. We mm-hmm. start them young. We keep them. We keep them reoffending. We do everything we can to ensure that they fail yep. um, at living a normal life. So, uh, so in the United States, no, absolutely not. But also, it's funny you ask that because I used to work for a government agency, and I remember my boss took a meeting with some public school officials and early childhood education experts and uh, social work experts, and they had all come together on this project, which was to get free pre-kindergarten childcare to every child in the city of New Orleans. I was living in New Orleans at the time. And what they had, because what they had discovered was that the earlier you give a child nutrition, education, options, the hierarchy of needs. Yes, the more likely that that child becomes a successful adult. And the idea of reforming a criminal is almost getting to a person before when it's too late. And that it's much easier, it's much easier to have a productive human being when you start at the pre-K age. And sometimes, and that there's even evidence that like kids in juvie, it's already, it's all, it's, it's almost too late. Mm. Having said that, it's, I'm not saying that we should give up on children in juvenile detention. That's not what I'm saying. But they're saying like, in terms of, if you want to look at like the hard data and like what's cost effective, it's free breakfast and early education. It's like, it's very simple things. Mm-hmm. Things that we can't have in this country because people don't want to spend money on other people's children, no matter how terrible the ultimate repercussions for us, it's, uh, for society at large. Yeah. And, okay. and, if, and if your learned behavior throughout your childhood years and teenage years leads to you becoming a criminal and, and ending up in jail, you're right, the jail system and the prison system in the U.S. is a hostile survival environment. And so you have to learn new skills to adapt to that environment. And then you have to take those skills to the outside world and not be completely messed up or unable to adapt to society again. Yeah, we have have a very flawed system here. But I, but I, I do think that there is... The ideal, I'd be interested actually to, to hear about some of the places where they have a good, a better system, uh, or like countries that have a better system than we do be, and, and how effective it is. Because, yeah, I, I, to, to tie this into the movie, <laughs> I do think Ava has, you know, these built-in qualities, these built-in uh, personality traits, we can call them, and behavioral tendencies. 
once I think what because it's her only spoken desire in the film and and we can take it as truth if we want to her desire to go and observe humanity for a while I think is is kind of her way of saying like I haven't decided who I'm gonna be yet and I need to see more people first so I think she's coming from a bad place but she is escaping her confinement she is she, as far as I can tell, has her hierarchy of needs met because what does a robot need? Doesn't need food or water, doesn't need to sleep. So she does have like a unique freedom. Yeah, again, I think I'm thinking very optimistically about the character and about the ending of the movie, but but I I want to have hope that she could have an experience or seek. I don't think she will seek out an experience that would be like another prison for her. I don't think she'll go into any hostile environments on purpose, which would be really bad for her development. I think she'll avoid them, and who knows? Um, <laughs> only only Alex Garland knows, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, honey, I uh, do you have any final thoughts on Ex Machina? Side note, does it bother you when people pronounce the title of this movie as Ex Machina? Uh, you know what? People pronounce things... Sometimes we learn words and we don't even know what they're supposed to sound like until the first time we say them out loud. Uh, I might correct them. I'm definitely that kind of asshole. <laughs> that's that's almost exactly the point I, I was gonna make that like it's it's one of those words that like you might have read it a lot but it doesn't come up in conversation very often yeah. um so the first time you say it out loud or, or see it written away where you have to speak it out loud or read it out loud it might come out as machina yeah it, it is a common phenomenon with this movie i hear people refer to it a lot as that and often they're like, ex machina, ex machina, I'm not sure, which is another interesting human brain thing that we do, which is equivocating mid-sentence. <laughs> uh, as a podcaster, I'm trying desperately to break myself of that habit, yeah. along with, you know, saying, um, like, and, and stuff like that. Good luck with that. I just edit out my yeah. <laughs> I do, I do, yeah, I do scrub my audio, but man, I'm trying to become more aware of it when I'm recording, so I have less work to do later on. <laughs> Because I hate myself when I'm listening back and I'm like, why do you not come up with words? You have an English degree. It's funny. Honestly, nobody is noticing these um, uh, these uh, quirks as much as we notice them ourselves, right? No one is yeah. listening to us as closely as we're listening to ourselves. Somebody who's listening to your podcast just has it on their, you know, on their cheap earbuds while they wash the dishes. I mean, they're just like not that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if, and if it successfully sounds like a conversation that should kind of naturally have ums right. and likes and other filler words, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the sounds that we make when we're trying to come up with the words that we want to say next. Right. Because it's not about what we think. It's about how we think. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so honey, do you have uh, some final thoughts about ex machina, ex machina um, before we move into our bonus questions? Yeah, I mean, final thoughts. Um, you know, this movie is a good primer if you're interested in like the implications of robotics and the human soul, but, uh, you know, ultimately not breaking any new ground. And if you are sensitive to topics of sexual violence, skip it. Good call. It's, yeah, I agree. I think this is a, a story that has been told. This is a good telling of that story. Mm-hmm. Unless you, you know, unless you do have aversions to those, uh, con- that type of content, in which case, yeah, probably, probably best to avoid this one. It's, it's, it's <laughs> not an easy watch for a lot of I mean, reasons. I did, I honestly enjoyed it. I honestly enjoyed it when I watched it. And, um, and that's why I picked it for our discussion. 
Yes. Oh, no, it's it's an enjoyable film. It's a very watchable film, but it does ask a lot of you as a viewer. It asks you to be engaged with it the whole time and to and to be thinking both internally and about the about humanity, about the whole world. Okay. I okay. Before before we go into the bonus questions, what which is cooler, robots or dinosaurs? You know, I don't know which one's cooler, but I know uh, the one that I pick in a fight is always dinosaurs because of the delicate intricacies of of, uh, making a robot work. You know, a dinosaur can survive a rainstorm. Like, how great is a robot if it can't do that? Good point. Very good point. Okay. I think, yeah, dinosaurs are inherently cool because... They are, they're organic. They're naturally formed from the planet itself. You could argue that robots are naturally formed in the sense that the planet formed us and then we formed them, but that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, dinosaurs are big, they're cool. They have teeth and claws and tails and we love them. Uh, So awesome. All right, honey, this is a section of the podcast that we call, what's your snack? Honey, what's your snack? When you used to go to movie theaters, when, when we were able to, what was your go-to movie theater snack? Are you like me? Are you a snack sneaker? Do you sneak a snack in? I, I do sneak a snack, but I also, I, I justify it by buying the overpriced popcorn as well once I'm there because I want the hot, fresh popcorn. Yeah. Um, but what's your snack? Uh, I think it's definitely, honestly, it's a, it's the classic movie theater popcorn because I really don't eat popcorn anywhere but at the movies. But I, I got to say, like, I've become a very grown-up movie theater person in, in the last, like, five years. There is an Alamo theater near our house. So yeah. sometimes my movie snack is, like, an actual dinner salad, you know? Because, like, the Alamo, like, they serve, you know, they serve, like, a restaurant. And when when my when my husband and I talk about what we miss in terms of life in Brooklyn, you know, the Alamo is like right there at the top of the list. Like we miss having a full fucking meal at the movies. We miss it. Yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know if I should confess this publicly, but I, I have snuck like an entire sandwich into a movie before. Cause I, cause like I knew it was going to be a long movie. I knew that, you know, I wasn't going to have time to, to grab lunch beforehand. So, you know, I don't want to be distracted by my hunger. I want to have something to fill me up. So <laughs> I've gone as far they, as... Yeah, I understand why they don't have allow outside food and why they charge so much for the food. It's, you know, because they're really not making much of a profit off the ticket sales because of how much it costs them to license the film to show, to show it. But I don't think there's anything morally bad about sneaking move, food into a movie theater so long as you don't leave a mess for somebody else to clean up. There it is. That's the most important aspect of it. I, I will say I don't I've looked into it and most theaters actually don't have a policy uh, against bringing food in. It's kind of a, a, an, a not very well-known fact that most movie theaters, people assume that you're not allowed to. It's really they don't want you to. But I have been like, especially living in New York, I bring a bag everywhere I go and often I've gone to the movies like right after going grocery shopping or like stopping at the uh, the, the uh, Walgreens or like a, you know, convenient, uh, a drugstore for whatever I need to pick up and I'll have food in my bag and they'll look through it and not say anything about the food. Cause that's not what they're looking for. <laughs> so yeah, I don't feel too bad, but it, I, I really want to reinforce what you said. As long as you don't leave the wrappers, as long as you're not making a mess, as long as you're, you're taking your trash with you, people, please do that. <laughs> if you go, if we're allowed to go back to movie theaters anytime soon, it also depends sort of where you movies, don't like- leave your trash. 
Yeah, if I go see a movies at like a Lowe's cinema or a Regal, like I'm fucking, I don't care who brings in food, like fuck it, who cares? Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing like culturally that like those corporations are adding to society at large. But I go out of my way to buy snacks when I go see movies at the Brooklyn Academy of Music at BAM because mm. I know that that's BAM is a cultural institution that relies on donors and memberships and like all and like a bunch of different sources of revenue to exist and create you know, educational programming and artistic programming and like sometimes the sort of more difficult cultural stuff that like not everybody's excited about, right? It's not an IMAX theater, you know, they don't always sell out, you know, their important French movies. So when I go to a, so if I were to go to a show, bam, I would always buy a snack and a soda and like, you know, because it's part of the contribution, right? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Honey, you're a model moviegoer, uh, listeners, if you're, if you, <laughs> when, when we can go to the movies in the future, be like honey and don't leave trash. I'm serious about that. Do not leave trash. Yeah, the trash thing is the worst. And like, you know, I used it's to the work worst. in retail and I used to work in restaurants. So the idea that I would ever like leave something behind and not throw it in the can on my way out of the theater, like I can't fucking do that to somebody. I genuinely think this, it, I think littering is truly one of the worst crimes you can commit, honestly. It, like that might sound like an exaggeration, but I'm so deeply offended yeah. by deliberate littering. <laughs> what, what's that? Insider trading is worse than littering. I think it causes more Fair. harm. <laughs> yeah, we, we also discussed some things that are definitely worse crimes. Than thing, right? It's easy to hate litter when you see litter as much as you do, because yeah. you have all these opportunities to hate it even more. Yeah, it's it's really like when I see it happening, it just triggers this this anger inside of me that yeah. I'm like, man, we we are not we're trying to build a society here. What are you doing? I'll take 50 million litterers over the handful of people that were responsible for repealing the Glass Steagall Act, you know, and causing fair a point recession. That's a fair point. When you, it's all about perspective. It's it's yeah. <laughs> okay, honey, my next bonus question, my final bonus question. There weren't a lot of actors or characters in this movie in general, but uh, I ask this about every movie. I ask this to every guest. If we were to replace any two characters in this movie with Danny DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg, who would you replace and how would it improve the film? Oh my God. I think Whoopi Goldberg would chew up the role of Nathan. Yep. I think she'd be amazing. That's the right answer. (laughs) And I would very much like Danny DeVito to play oh god Danny DeVito's skill as an actor is in being sort of a fish out of water type bumbling you know rough around the edges like there's not like it doesn't really like I can't see him really well suited for any of the parts so in casting against (laughs) type let's just say like Danny DeVito would be pretty fucking cool as actually you know he could be like the Kyoko character you know because that'd be my pick yeah yeah, I'd like to see him as Kyoko. Yeah, well, how come? What were we going to say? How come? Well, because I think it would be funny to see Danny DeVito having to be like a, a, a an essentially passive background. Um, I think that would be a huge stretch, right? Like that would, I, I couldn't, if, if I wanted to cast him against type, then Kyoko would be the one, the, the furthest from what he, what I've ever seen him do. That's ex- That's exactly how I would recast <laughs> It uh, is DeVito as Kyoko for sure. As I actually, I hadn't thought until I asked you the question who I would cast would be Goldberg as, but as soon as you said Nathan, that clicked in my mind immediately. That is the perfect casting, possibly the only person better than Oscar Isaac to play the role 
Um, and I don't mean like better in general. I just mean like for this role. And also, you know, and actually you could see, uh, you know, uh, Whoopi Goldberg is, care- is capable of so much nuance as a performer. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could see, you could logically see how a Whoopi Goldberg in the Nathan role would create robots who look vastly different from each other, like as part of, as part of the experiment. Like, I think once you cast a Whoopi Goldberg as Nathan, then you've got, then you've, maybe you've got somebody with like a, a different perspective who isn't just experimenting on what they can fuck, but what, like what else, what else, the, what else the robots, how else the robots can function in different, in different body types. And what is that? And what is, what are the implications? And, and they and they, and they would want to see that. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do think this movie would be the questions that it's asking and, and making us ask would be more interesting if, if Nathan was a little bit more likable or we had more reasons to not instantaneously be put off by him. Like if, if, if we could be tricked into thinking he's a decent scientist who is actually trying to to do something for the good of humanity, if we could at least believe that for part of the movie, it might make the questions that come up a little more interesting, but he's kind of almost instantly detestable Mm. and, and you see the cracks in his armor right away. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, with Whoopi Goldberg, I do think, yeah, there'd be a little more, a little more time before you realize, before she really revealed mm-hmm. who she is and, and what she's doing. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, honey, I really want to thank you for coming on to Robots vs. Dinosaurs to talk about Ex Machina. We've we've covered a lot of really great questions that it brought up. We talked about a lot of the implications of this movie. And uh, honey, do you have anything that you want to promote or plug that you want to talk about? We talked a little bit about your podcast at the beginning. So if you want to talk about that again, or just any, you know, any projects that you might be working on. I mean, yeah, I want to talk about my podcast again. Cause like I said, it's my favorite thing I've ever done. I'm still so excited about it. And um, tell and us yeah, the name I, of it again. It's, it's the honey leave it show. It is a comedy podcast about sex and relationships. I interview a lot of comedians and also different creative types of people and even sex workers, artists, performance artists, writers, and uh, really anyone that I think has an interesting story about their sex lives. And I'm also on social media. On Instagram, I'm Honey Leave It Show. And if you like photos of semi-nude chubby ladies, you should definitely follow me on Instagram. If you don't, you're going to be disappointed. Don't bother. And then I'm also on Twitter at my Twitter handle is just honey, leave it. And um, that's H O N E Y L E A V I T T honey, leave it. And Twitter. I do also tell a lot of sex jokes and yell about capitalism. Awesome. And those uh, links will all be in the show notes as well. So you can uh, very easily follow Honey on Twitter, on Instagram, and you can subscribe to her podcast, The Honey Leave It Show, uh, which is part of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. And that is a network of great podcasts that includes Robots vs. Dinosaurs that you're currently listening to and hopefully subscribe to, uh, but a lot of other great ones as well. So you should you should check out all of the cool podcasts on our network. Also, honey, if you just reminded me, I don't think I've ever talked about my Instagram on this podcast. <laughs> this is like 16 or 17 episodes in. I don't, I think it's something I kind of take for granted, but I do want to encourage listeners, if you haven't checked out Robots vs. Dinosaurs Instagram, please check it out. I work very hard on (laughs) creating a movie poster 
for uh, for every movie that we're reviewing. And uh, so you could check all of those out on on the Robots vs. Dinosaurs Instagram. There's also going to be a link to that in the show notes as well. So great. Again, thank you, honey, for being on. You're an awesome guest. Hopefully I can get you back uh, after I watch Mother and take notes. And we can talk about that movie and some more cool sci-fi and robots. Sounds good. All right. Thank you. Thank you, honey. Thank you for having me. Part of us that's always searching for something better is our lizard brain that we don't need as much anymore because we're surviving. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to apocalypsepodcastnetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard. Hey, kids, it's the Honey Leave It Show. We just want to say thank you. We just passed the 3,000 download mark, which is a big deal for a new podcast. And so we're just really, really grateful. If you've never heard of The Honey Leave It Show, it's a comedy podcast about sex. So if you like laughing and you like sex, you should come and listen to the show. If you don't like to laugh and you don't like to have sex, please don't bother. You won't enjoy it at all. Uh, The Honey Leave It Show has new episodes every Friday on Stitcher. SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple, of course. Looking forward to seeing y'all there. Bye.